Please join me in a word of prayer before we come to the text of Scripture this morning and talk about the suffering servant. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the song that you've put in our heart that we have been able to collectively as a church family declare out loud, we want to adore you for what you've done for us in Christ. We do not want to lose sight of the greatness of the cross and what our Lord Jesus has achieved for us. As we take this time now to learn from your word and be reminded yet again of the greatness of our Savior, encourage us, I pray. Give us the ears that we all need to hear to listen to this. Please allow the words to penetrate into our hearts, to grip us, to change us, to transform us into the likeness of your Son. I pray that you receive all the glory and we would walk away with a greater understanding of the cross, celebrating and adoring our Lord Jesus. I do pray this in his name. Amen. When we open our Bibles and turn to the New Testament, uh, we know that the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are known as the Gospels. And these four gospel accounts provide for us in a selective way stages of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These four writers don't record everything there is to be recorded. Each writer will have a different point of focus, a different specific agenda. But what brings them all together is they are declaring to us the arrival of the Messiah. They are showing how he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. That he died in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. These four accounts, like Nothing else in the New Testament provides us these details concerning these stages of Christ's life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Yet there is another passage of Scripture that was actually written 700 years before those gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written after the event after Jesus lived on this earth, after Jesus preached, after Jesus died, and after Jesus rose from the dead. But this portion of Scripture that I'm referring to was written 700 years before any of those events occurred. And this particular portion of Scripture contains such detailed words. It's resulted in some scholars to refer to it as the fifth gospel. Perhaps it might be a little bit more accurate to call it the first gospel, for it was written before the others. But this title that it's dubbed with reveals something about this particular text. This text is detailed, it is specific. And the passage that I have in mind is what Glenn had read for us a few moments before. So I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. 
This morning we're going to look at the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. And this passage takes place between chapters 52 and verse 13 all the way through to the end of chapter 53. Uh, This is one of those few places in the Bible where the chapter division is a bit unfortunate. Uh, It would have been better for the chapter to begin in chapter 52 and verse 13. But these 15 verses provide for us a single song, the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. And these 15 verses can be understood and outlined in five sections. These five sections are what we could call the five stanzas of a song. And each stanza provides for us a different stage in the life and ministry of the suffering servant. Now, I want you to know that throughout this message, I'll refer to this song as Isaiah 53, because that's what it's normally known as. But please know and understand that that does include chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. But what I want you to see, more important than the chapter divisions, is a singular song. And it's a song that was written 700 years before the events that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is detailed. It is graphic. It is pointed. And the theme that binds this entire section together is suffering. The Lord God sends his servant into this world who will suffer. And the suffering is dark. The suffering is brutal. Yet there's something else incredibly fascinating about this song. Yes, it was written 700 years before the event. But if you jump ahead and look at the language seen in the second, third, and fourth stanza, you'll notice that there is a group of witnesses speaking. Witnesses of this event. And these witnesses speak of the event as impacting and transforming a group of people. Uh, They use the plural, our, we, us all. It's a group of people who are speaking as being transformed by what this suffering servant did. And not only are they speaking as a group who've been transformed, this group of people are speaking of the sufferings of the suffering servant in the past tense. These individuals are actually looking back 
So even though this is a prophecy 700 years before, this prophecy actually goes beyond the events it prophesies of concerning the suffering servant, and this prophecy is actually looking forward to a final day in which there will be a large group of people who will give testimony to being transformed by the power and ministry of this suffering servant. This is a victorious song. It's a song that announces the victory before the battle even happened. It was so certain that it speaks of what would occur. So this is a stunning prophecy. Another thing I want you to note about this song is that seven times in the New Testament, a portion of this song is directly quoted. Seven times. But over 40 times in the New Testament, the writers allude to the language of this song. That should immediately gain our attention to see and understand that this song is significant to all the writers of the New Testament. And this is the key to understanding the message of the gospel. Seven times directly quoted in the New Testament, over 40 allusions. And this song, which consists of five stanzas, 15 verses, each stanza having three verses each, has at its heart, the very center of this song is stanza number three, and the verse in the middle of stanza three at the heart of the entire song is what we read in Isaiah 53 and verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. I want you to see that that verse that I just read is the heart of the song. It is carefully placed with beautiful symmetry right in the middle of the song. It's the heartbeat of this entire song concerning the suffering servant. Now what I want to do this morning is walk through this song. We're not going to be able to consider all five stanzas in the detail that would be satisfactory for any of us today. And I would love at a future time to spend five sermons going through each of these stanzas because they are so profound, so amazing. They leave us in awe of God's plan and of Christ's wonderful ministry to us. But what I'll do this morning is I want us to simply walk through quickly these five stages of the suffering servant's ministry. And as we walk through quickly, I want you to see the connections in which these prophecies, these descriptions were fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the New Testament writers emphasize this. They explain this. They show this. The apostles declare this. There is a message for us to see and behold. But what I want you to see here in this song is a proclamation concerning the good news of the gospel. 
Let's begin with the very first stanza. It's found in chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. And this is the first stage of the suffering servant's ministry, and that is the servant's supremacy. This first stanza is a little bit different to the rest. As you glance down and look at these three verses, you'll see that this not only tells us about historical events, but it includes a a series of points that really is a summary of the whole song. We learn that the suffering servant will be exalted on high. He will be extolled and adored and worshipped. We learn that he will become a man and he will suffer. He will be beaten and bashed. We also learn that his ministry will be a ministry that will succeed and will advance across the world, that there will be Gentiles who will be transformed by him. What you see in the very first stanza is really the overview of the whole song. This suffering servant is supreme. But there was a mystery to his supremacy. Let's begin with verse 13. In this first stanza, the Lord God himself is speaking. And he makes an announcement in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The Lord God is saying that my servant will be most wise. There will be none like him. And he will be exalted and he will be extolled. This is language that belongs only to God. This reveals that this servant, this servant of the Lord, is actually divine. He's God. No other human is to be exalted. No other human is to be extolled. But this servant is, this servant is divine. He's supreme. But then suddenly... And shockingly and startlingly, he says in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Going from the heights of saying that this servant is divine, he will be exalted on high. He will be adored. He will have a supremacy like none other. Yet this one who is divine will be bashed. He will be brutally beaten. And his physical appearance will be marred. He will look horrible. He will look as one who has undergone excruciating pain. I want you to see here in veiled language a mystery that the New Testament will declare with more clarity. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1.14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The second member of the Holy Trinity, this Son of God, who is exalted on high, 
who is supreme, came into this world and assumed a human nature. He was truly God, but he was truly man. And John will go on to tell us that he came amongst his own and his own did not receive him. We do read later on in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John that he will be arrested, he will be beaten, he will be lashed, he'll be stabbed, he'll be spat upon, he'll be mocked, he'll be laughed at. And we see in this prediction that this suffering servant will be divine, but he will be a man too, and this supreme one, this divine one, will be marred. He will be beaten. But then jumping ahead again to the exaltation and supremacy, the Lord says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. He will bring cleansing to many nations. His power, his work will go outside of the confines of Israel and it will impact and transform many In fact, there will be kings who will shut their mouths at him. They will be startled by his greatness. The Apostle Paul uses this text in Romans 15 to speak of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ amongst Gentiles. So what I want you to see in this first stage of the song is we're introduced immediately to one who is supreme. He is divine. He is God. But he becomes a man. And as he becomes a man, he subjects himself to the most humiliating of physical experiences. We'll explain this a little bit more in the next stanza. But I want you to see that God becomes man and he suffers. But he has a final victory. He has a final exaltation. And he will bring transformation and cleansing to the nations. The song begins immediately with the final victory. It's an announcement that all ends well. What a great way for the song to start. But it's now we move to the second stanza. And the voice changes. It's no longer the Lord speaking. Those speaking in the next few stanzas are a group of witnesses who look back. These people who were once in rebellion look back and see what they missed when it first happened as a nation. But they have been transformed and they give testimony to who this servant is and what he's done. And stanza number two tells us about the second stage in the suffering servant's ministry, and that is the servant's shunning. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground doesn't sound like a very stable root. It sounds like something that can be easily snapped. There's no moisture in the soil. It's something that can be easily plucked out. He will have no form or comeliness, 
And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. When this suffering servant comes onto the scene, the nation of Israel will reject him. They'll reject him because he will not meet their expectations. He will not look like one who will fulfill what they want. They wanted a Messiah of their making. They wanted a Messiah who would be a strong political figure, who would overthrow their opponents and oppressors. They would have one who would lead them into victory and triumph and power. In fact, they would have one who would meet their needs. The problem with the people of Israel was that they were looking for a Messiah, not of Scripture's prediction, but of their own making. And that is true for so many people today. People are looking for a a God or a Messiah of their own desires, one that fulfills their own pleasures, their own preferences, one who will accommodate to their lifestyle, one who may even make fleshly promises to them, a Messiah that is designed to fulfill their felt needs. But people reject the Messiah they truly need. We are told that He was despised and rejected by men. The supreme Son of God left the glories of heaven, assumed a human nature, and came into this world. And as he came amongst his own, his own rejected him. We do not want you. We will not listen to you. You're nothing. He was shunned. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would experience every temptation that you and I would experience, yet he would do it without sin. And the witnesses here say, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We did not value him for who he was. We let him pass by, and it was as if when we saw him, we just turned away and hid our faces so we did not even have to look at him. He was not relevant to us. The song declares that this suffering servant would come into the world and it would be rejected by his own. Do we not see this in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? As Jesus comes, he would not be received by his own. Not only was he not received, he was outrightly rejected. He was hated. People were seeking to silence him. They did not want to hear his message. Even on the occasion when he fed the thousands in John chapter 6, satisfying their physical hunger, This crowd immediately wanted to drag him into Jerusalem and crown him as king and make him Messiah. Why? Because he was the Messiah that fulfilled all their own personal pleasures. He's the one that gave them free buffet meals. This was a Messiah of their making. But Jesus rejected such a proposition. He went on to show them that he is the bread of life. This miracle was done to display that he and he alone can satisfy their greatest needs and feed their souls. He revealed the costliness of what it is to follow him. 
and many, many rejected him and departed from him. The second stanza of this song tells us that the suffering servant will be shunned. Thirdly, we learn, and this is the heart of the song, that the suffering servant will be a sacrifice. But he'll be no ordinary sacrifice. He will be a substitutionary sacrifice. He will take the place of many. And the reason why he will take their place is because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have broken the law of God. And all are not just sinners by actions, but all are sinners by nature. Their sin must be dealt with. And he would come as a substitutionary sacrifice. For the Jewish people, the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice was not unusual. The Lord had stipulated for the Jewish people in their laws a sacrificial system in which their sins would be covered. And this sacrificial system would involve the sacrifice of animals in which there would be a transfer of the people's sin uh, to that animal. That animal would be sacrificed on behalf of them. But the problem with that sacrificial system was the animal itself could not actually absorb your sin. It was not actually a substitute that could take away God's wrath. The animal was always a picture, a picture of a substitute who would be sinless and would take the place of the Lord's people that he would suffer in their place and receive the wrath of God on their behalf. And look at the stunning language that we read in verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why was it necessary for this servant to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us? It's because of our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray, and because we have all turned everyone to his own way. That describes the human condition of every single human being outside of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We are all sinners, separate from God. And it's not just the sins on our outside, it's the sins on the inside. God knows it all, and these sins have heaped up his wrath, and our sins deserve the just judgment of God, an eternity in hell, an eternity in which we will face the continual fury of God's wrathful presence. There is nothing worse in this universe than that. Yet we are told that this suffering servant will come into this world and he will be a sacrifice. 
a substitutionary one. He himself is sinless. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says that Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Yet he will come as one who will stand in the place. He will bear our griefs. He will carry our sorrows. He will receive a piercing for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. There will be deep wounds placed into his body so that we would receive healing. And whilst we have gone astray, he will shepherd us back to God. Our iniquities, which are full in our lives, will be laid on him. What a stunning picture. This suffering servant who's supreme will come into the world and be shunned. But not only will he be shunned, he will stand willingly as a substitutionary sacrifice for all who would believe. This brings us to the fourth stanza, and that is the servant's silence. We are told that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Just in passing, the the prophet speaks here of his oppression and affliction. We do learn in the gospel accounts and in other prophecies, that he will have a beating. His clothes will be stripped off him. His back will be lashed with whips. He'll be made to bear his own cross. He will be nailed to the cross. He will be hoisted up on the cross. He will be thirsty on the cross. He will be laughed at on the cross. Whilst they were putting him on that cross, Roman soldiers would punch him in the face and demand of him that he would prophesy and say who did that. His enemies will have their moment of laughter and glee and delight as they say, finally, you're there. Suffering, the wickedness of their heart will spew out. He will be afflicted. And this affliction will also involve the process in which he will stand before courts. He'll stand before religious courts and civil courts. And they will level accusations against him. They'll accuse him of crimes. In fact, there were two crimes that he was charged with as to why he must be treated like a criminal, why he would be crucified between two scoundrels. What were the charges? He committed a religious crime and he committed a civil crime. The religious crime was that he committed blasphemy Because he said that he's God. The second crime was civil. And he has committed treason. But you'll notice the text says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 2, quotes this. And uses this as an example that when we go through unjust suffering, we are to endure that 
just like Christ had silently endured this. Why did Jesus keep his mouth closed? Why didn't he say, I am the supreme one. I am the exalted one. I'm the one who's going to sprinkle the nations. He kept his mouth silent because he knew that though these charges are leveled towards him, he is standing there as a substitute for sinners. And he is willingly undergoing all of this because he must face the judgment of God. Jesus must go to the cross because you and I have blasphemed against God. You and I have committed treason against God. And whilst it was unjust from an earthly perspective, Jesus stood there and endured it because he knew why he was there. He was there for us. And he patiently endured the mocking, the pain, the agony, the ugly words. And he said nothing. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. This brings me to the end of that stanza. Let's look at verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was deceit in his mouth. He was innocent, sinless, not guilty. This text also reminds us that he actually died. We learn in the Gospels that it happened through crucifixion. And we see the fulfillment of this was they, instead of throwing him into Gehenna and to be burned up with other criminals, the scum of society, so to speak, an arrangement was made through Joseph of Arimathea that he must be taken down from the cross. We have a burial, a rich man's burial, and there he will be laid we see in fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus of Nazareth died and was buried and was buried in a rich man's tomb. This now brings us to the final stanza. And this really ends where the song begins, but it ends with a purely triumphant note, and that is the servant's success. From an earthly perspective, it all looked like a failure. The sovereign servant of heaven came into this world and was immediately beaten and bashed and rejected by man. He suffered and died at the cross. He said nothing and was killed and then was buried. That doesn't sound like a triumphant song, but the song ends by saying, let's now look at this all from God's perspective. Let's not glance at the cross from the, the ground up, but let's now look at it from heaven's point of view. What was actually happening at the cross? While we see injustice and lies and mocking and conspiracy and deceit going on behind closed doors by the religious leaders and by the political leaders, the song says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Father was pleased by this. Not by the injustice of sinful man, but this death of the servant was not, the res was not something that could be considered as a victim's death. But this death was planned before the foundation of the world so that the many would have their sins forgiven. 
so the many would have their sins atoned for, so the many would experience justification. Let's jump down for a moment and see this in the second half of verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous one shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He will bear the iniquities of many. And then down at the end of verse 12, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He succeeded. And the success is seen in the language of certainty and accomplishment. The middle of verse 10, he shall see his seed. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Verse 11, he shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's language of success. His mission was accomplished. He did exactly what he came into this world to do. He left the glories of heaven so that he would stand in the place of the many so that their sins would be placed upon him. He would receive the fullness of God's fury, the fury that would keep us in hell for an eternity. He endured it for three hours on the cross and at the end was able to say, it is finished. After which he gave up his ghost and died. He was buried. But notice that the text says in the middle of verse 10, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. That is an Old Testament veiled reference to the resurrection. He will not stay in that grave. If you're dead, you can't see your offspring. He will see those he died for. He will see them because he will come alive. He will be resurrected. And he will be satisfied by his labor. He will ascend to the glory of heaven. He will go to the right hand of the Father. And according to Psalm 16, he will go to the place where there is the fullness of joy. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He will be satisfied. Now I want to finish by reminding you that this song is quoted seven times in the New Testament with over 40 allusions. This song can only be fulfilled by one person in all of history and that is Jesus of Nazareth. It's interesting that in Acts chapter 8, there was an Ethiopian official. We know him as the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't have his name. A very important man. And Philip the evangelist had been moved on from the Lord from a very successful, vibrant ministry so that he would bump into this Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian just so happened to be reading out loud Isaiah 53. Philip goes up to him and asks him a very good question. Do you understand what you're reading? To which the reply came, I'm actually stumped on this reading. 
It speaks about someone who is led as, a, as a, a lamb to the slaughter. It's speaking of one who is silent before his aggressors. Who could this be? To which Philip showed him from that passage and many others in the Old Testament that this is pointing to Jesus. And after he proclaimed that message to the eunuch, the man declared to Philip, What prevents me from being baptized? To which Philip said, If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with your heart, you may. And they stopped the chariot, went into the waters, and he was baptized. That man saw that his sins, his rebellion, had been dealt with at the cross because the supreme, shunned, sacrificial, silent, and successful servant came into this world to represent him so that he who was unjust would be made just in God's eyes. This Good Friday and this Easter weekend, we celebrate and remember what Christ has accomplished for us. What a saviour. What a Lord. What a sacrifice and what cost. To him be the glory and the praise. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you for what we could be reminded of this morning in this powerful text. Please bless us and guide us now as we gather around your table. We thank you for this weekend, which is a significant time of our proclamation as we remember what Christ had accomplished. I pray that we would see many people come to the saving knowledge of Christ, that they would indeed be sprinkled and cleansed by his blood, forgiven of all their sins, and help us to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.